narratives in particular. I'm calling this the visitations. And so during my reading this week, I came across what I think is a fascinating aspect of the Christmas story, and specifically as it relates to the visitation of Gabriel to Zacharias and to Mary, telling them of the miracle that would be performed in them and through them in the days ahead. So... As a bit of a context, the book of Malachi is the last book in our Old Testament, and in it we find two important pieces of prophecy, both of which Luke include in his gospel account, which the other gospels do not include. And so when we look together in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, there's prophecy about a messenger who is going to come and make the way of the Lord. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Also in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, there's prophecy about the coming of the Lord himself. Malachi 4.2, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. So the Old Testament closes on a very positive, hopeful note that the Son of Righteousness would arise, His glorious light would dispel the spiritual darkness that has overcome the people. And what we find from the end of the Old Testament in Malachi to the gospel narratives that we find in our Bible today is a period of about 400 years that has passed. There is a period of spiritual darkness that has overcome the nation of Israel different from any that they had ever faced before. The Jewish people had sunk deeper and deeper into apostasy. The nation had abandoned the Old Testament truth that salvation is by faith and favor, excuse me, faith alone in favor of salvation by legalism or self-righteousness or good meritorious works. Their religion consisted of empty, self-serving ritual that could not save them. And this kind of religious, spiritual experience that was pervasive in the day is what brought Jesus' most scathing rebuke to the nation of Israel when he said in Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is the way Jesus summarized the Israel religious experience in his teaching. And not long after that, Paul would summarize his own experience being raised as a Jew, being trained as a rabbi. He would say in Romans chapter 10, For I testify about them, the nation of Israel, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So it is this kind of spiritual environment 
that the nation of Israel has devolved into from the end of the hopeful note of the promises given by Malachi to the real life experience that they were facing each and every day. So it's in this darkened spiritual environment over this 400 years where God has been silent. There has been no prophet on the scene. There is no record of any supernatural or spiritual communication by God to His people. And so Luke will provide for us information that the other Gospels do not, and his inclusion of the birth of John the, of John the Baptist is important for several reasons. First of all, it connects the Old and the New Testaments together. Now, some people think that the Old Testament is an old way of salvation and the New Testament is a new way, but that isn't the case at all. They don't teach two different religions or propose two different ways of salvation. Rather, they are one unified revelation from God, separated by 400 years, offering the hope of redemption through faith in the true and living God and in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah who has come who was promised in the past and has now been realized. Secondly, John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. That fulfillment demonstrates the accuracy of those predictions, further linking the Old and the New Testaments together and placing the New Testament as Scripture on par with that of the Old. Third, it was through John the Baptist that God broke his 400-year-long silence, and Gabriel's appearance to Zechariah was the first supernatural communication recorded during this 400 years. Fourth, John's birth was miraculous in that his parents, like Abraham and Sarah, all the way back in the book of Genesis, were beyond the normal child-bearing age. That foreshadowed the even more miraculous virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, and most significantly, the story of John the Baptist establishes that he was the divinely prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. So John's testimony concerning Jesus verifies, based upon what the Old Testament said, that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Now, I'm going to do something that I've never done before, at least not in my recollection. I don't believe I've taught on these passages, but I know I've never done passages parallel to one another and pulled out what is significant in them, and that's what I'm going to do here today. There are nine parallels that we're going to see in the visitations to Zechariah and to Mary telling them about what it is that God is going to do. So in the first of these nine parallels, the parents, first of all, are going to be introduced. Both accounts begin by introducing the parents, Zechariah and then eventually Elizabeth, and then in the revelation to Mary, she as the parent because she was not yet married to Joseph. So you're going to put your fingers in Luke 1 beginning in verse 5, and then you're going to want to go all the way down to Luke 26 and kind of follow along. I thought about reading these in in connection with one another, but they're so long and I I want to be mindful of the time. So here's what it says in Luke 1, 5 through 6, as we look at the parallel of the parents being introduced. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. 
They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So all that we know about Zacharias and Elizabeth is found in Luke's account, and they all but disappear after the circumcision of John, which is recorded later in chapter 1. So Zacharias was a common name in Scripture, and this particular Zacharias was just one of thousands of priests in Israel. Israel, carrying out his duties in obscurity in a remote village in Judah. We see that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God, remaining faithful through the darkest days of Israel's history. They were obedient and did all that God had commanded from His Word. And then in the parallel to that, we get introduced to Mary six months later, as we see from verse 26 and then towards the end in verse 36, where their narrative gives the impression that six months after Gabriel visited Zechariah, he now visits Mary. And here's what we read in Luke 1, 26 and 27. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary... So Mary was a young girl engaged to be married. She was one of thousands of young Jewish girls who were waiting for the completion of the betrothal period. She was likely 15 and six, 15 or 16. And some Jewish girls were married as young as 13 after their bat mitzvah ceremony. And a dowry would be given to them. And so some girls were married much younger than others because of the need that a family would have for the, for the dowry that that would be given to them in exchange for the wedding of the daughter. So here is this very common Mary, who now has been is going to be visited by Gabriel, who's engaged to be married. So the individual, the individuals that Gabriel visits are not remarkable in any way. They're not royalty, they're not noteworthy. They're obscure people in remote parts of Judea going about their daily business. And the angel Gabriel, sent from heaven by God, is going to appear to them and give to them a message. They are unique only in the point that God has chosen them to fulfill an incredible role in His eternal redemptive mission. Secondly, in the parallel, we see the obstacles. Both accounts state obstacles about childbearing as Gabriel gives to them this message. Luke 1.7 But they, Zacharias and Elizabeth, had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. So many in that culture would have wondered why Zacharias and Elizabeth never had any children. They would wrongly conclude that there must be sin, particularly in Zacharias' life, that would had that would force God to curse them and withhold the blessed gift of child-rearing from their lives because of something that they had done. So childlessness was an extremely difficult burden for women to bear in Jewish society. To make matters worse, they were now elderly and beyond the normal childbearing years, giving the indication that they would not ever have any child of their own to raise in their home. In human terms, their position was absolutely and completely hopeless 
without any glimmer of the ability to change where they found themselves as being childless. But that obstacle really doesn't compare with the next obstacle that we see in Luke 1.34. This is a little bit further down in the narrative where the obstacle is expressed specifically when Mary says to the angel, how can this be, after hearing the message, since I am a virgin? So she was a young unmarried girl, and while she was physically young enough to be able to bear a child, she was still a virgin and was not yet married. So it is physically impossible to become pregnant in a state of virginity. And in Mary's mind, this is a huge obstacle that would need to be overcome. So the obstacle to the pronouncement that would come was the fact that Mary was an unmarried virgin. The third parallel that we see here is the fear. Gabriel's arrival in his appearance frightens the one to whom he has appeared. In Luke 1, 11 and 12, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. Through his long life as a priest, Zacharias had served in his local temple year after year, and comparatively, they were quite unremarkable. The priest was required to go into the temple and perform his his priestly duties alone, where he would light the incense, where he would pray the prayers, where he would make the pronouncements, where he would offer the sacrifice, whatever his duties required him to do. Zacharias did this year after year in a very obscure and unremarkable way. But in this instance... As he is performing these routine duties, suddenly to the right of the altar, Gabriel appears, and when Gabriel shows up, Zacharias is gripped with fear. Nothing is said about a spectacular appearance, no clothing is mentioned, no bright white lights, no sudden sounds, only that Zacharias is doing his duty, and Gabriel appears out of nowhere, and Zacharias is gripped with fear. Now, we might think, well, that's kind of odd. Why would Zacharias not be expecting something like that? Would you be expecting something like that? Sitting there in your kitchen unloading the dishwasher for the thousandth time? You wouldn't expect it at all, would you? Similarly, Mary is also frightened when Gabriel appears to her. Luke 1, 28 and 29. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Now, we don't know what Mary was doing. It is assumed that she was in her home, likely performing her routine chores, minding her own business, being a faithful daughter. And as she is going about these duties, all of a sudden, Gabriel the angel, a stranger to her, enters into her home and greets her. This is kind of an angelic home invasion, if you will. And she's not expecting it, and he shows up, and she is perplexed. That's the word that is used here in the New Testament, and that word means that she is greatly troubled, or she is disturbed by this appearance and this greeting that she has heard. I would imagine she would be shaking. I would imagine that her breathing rate has increased, that her heart is racing, and she's just imagining what in the world is this man doing in my home, and who is this man, and was it what is it that he has just said to me? So in both of these appearances, 
They are frightened. They are gripped with fear. And there are likely physical symptoms that communicate that sudden fright that they're experiencing as the angel Gabriel has appeared to them and begins to deliver to them this incredible message. The fourth parallel that we see here is the reassurance. This begins in Luke 1.13a. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. I would imagine through heavy panting and breathing and Imagination running wild, Zacharias hears Gabriel say, don't be afraid, your petition has been heard. Now the petition is likely related to the prayers that he and his wife Elizabeth had prayed for years and years and years for the privilege and the gift of being able to bear a child. And perhaps these prayers have now been abandoned because they are advanced in years, they are elderly, and they are far beyond the normal age when any individual would expect to be able to have a child. Mary is also frightened and receives the same reassurance from Gabriel in verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And so Mary, not Mary having found favor with God, indicates that Gabriel is there to speak a blessing to her, not a judgment. We don't understand the nuances in the Jewish greetings. They were far more lengthy than what we get here in the words of this account. But there would be certain hand gestures and bowing and hugging and other things that would be a part of this normal greeting. But here, Gabriel seeks to calm her fear by indicating that she is the recipient of a great blessing from God. So being favored or finding favor with God indicates that God was going to bestow grace upon Mary and giving her a unique role in His redemptive plan. Mary is a recipient of God's grace and unlike what Catholics would teach, she is not a dispenser of grace. Roman Catholics have, incre- have incorrectly believed that in verse, that Mary has been, Mary is given the right to dispense grace. She is the queen of heaven and we are to worship her because God has found favor with her and elevated her to some spiritual status that really isn't a part of what this greeting indicates. So down in verse 47 in this familiar section known as the Magnificat, Mary praises God and she says her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. So Mary recognizes that she is a sinner in need of a Savior, just like everybody else. She is not a dispenser of grace. She is a recipient of grace. So Gabriel seeks to calm her fear with a message that God is bestowing grace upon her. Fifthly, we see as a part of the parallel the promised son. Verse 113b, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. So back in Zechariah, Gabriel tells Zacharias, don't be afraid. Your petition has been heard and your wife is going to bear you a son. Now I would imagine that in this heightened physical position that Zacharias was in, that he would be somewhat numb from the appearance of Gabriel 
and now hearing that his prayers have been heard and that his his advanced in age wife is going to bear him a son and they would be able to put the barrenness behind him, I would imagine that Zacharias is probably doing... What did you just say? My wife Elizabeth, you got the right guy, right? She's going to bear me a son? I would imagine he's thinking very quickly, how in the world is that ever going to happen? So in a like manner, down in, in verse 31, Gabriel tells Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb... And bear a son. So Mary will give birth to a son, but not just any son. She will give birth to the son, the son of God, the one who is the hope and the, and the solution, the consolation for the nation of Israel, the one that they have longed for for so many years. She is going to give birth to that son very differently from the, very different from the son that Zacharias and Elizabeth would seem born into their home. The sixth parallel that we see here is the son is named. Gabriel gives to them the name of their son. And it says in verse 13, see the last part of that, and you'll give him the name John. Now it was customary for Jews to use family names or names of significance and for an elderly couple to miraculously have a son in advanced age when they've been barren for so long, most would assume that this son would be given the name of the father to carry on the family name in a very particular way. But as is described later in the chapter at John's circumcision, as the community assumed that the boy would be named Zacharias, that was not God's plan. That was not what the instruction was. And so the name John, which means God is gracious, is the name that God has chosen for John the Baptist. And Zacharias and Elizabeth faithfully obey, and they name him John. So in the same way, Mary is also told in the middle part of verse 31 that you shall name him Jesus. The word Jesus is a transliteration in the Greek of a Hebrew name, meaning Yahweh saves, and the pronunciation of Jesus is actually Yeshua. So the son born to Mary and Joseph is going to be named Yeshua, indicating that Yahweh saves, and the name indicates the son's unique role in God's redemptive plan. There would be no mistaking in the Hebrew mind what the name Yeshua would communicate to them. Seventh parallel that we see is the greatness of the Son. So in verses 15 through 17, Gabriel tells Zacharias of the greatness of the Son that he was going to father. And it says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Very clearly, based upon the prophecy that we found in Malachi, John is going to fulfill the role as the forerunner of the Messiah, just as was promised. John would live an obscure life. In fact, after the occasion of his circumcision, 
He disappears, and no mention of Him is made until He appears on the scene to announce the coming of the Messiah, the one who would take away the sin of the world. John lived in the deserts, based upon what we find in the Gospel accounts. He wore clothing made of camel's hair and wore a leather belt. He took on the physical appearance of a prophet in the likeness of Elijah. He ate locusts and wild honey. He lived out there as an unusual man. And while he was by no means great in the sight of men, he was great in the sight of God because he was going to fulfill the role that God had established for him. And he fulfilled that role perfectly until he was beheaded by one of the Roman Herods. He looked radically different from the religious leaders of his day, and he preached a message that was radically different from the religious leaders of his day. He preached repentance and preparation for the coming of the Messiah, while the religious leaders preached hypocrisy and burdened the people with legalism and nowhere near clearly articulated what a relationship with God looked like, nor did they articulate the greatness of the God that they were to serve. He preached this message of repentance and eventually would be the one that would baptize Jesus in the Jordan River. Jesus had this to say about John the Baptist, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Surely John the Baptist was a great man. But there was an even greater man who was to be born. Jesus, who was fully God and fully man. And here's what Gabriel tells Mary about the greatness of this son. Verses 32 and 33. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. There is no Jewish person who would ever hear this pronouncement and not rightly understand that this was the promise being fulfilled of the coming of the Messiah. And so in these two verses, we find the purpose of Christmas. We find the reason for the incredible incarnation of the God-man. The amazing child would be God incarnate, perfectly righteous in everything he thought, in everything he said, and in everything he did. He would die as a sinless sacrifice, providing himself as a substitute for sinners, offering his atoning death to save them from their sins. That is the meaning of Christmas, and that is what the promised Messiah was coming to do for the nation of Israel. But that is not at the end of the story. He would not remain dead after his sacrificial death. He would rise to reign for all eternity as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. And God will give to him the throne of David and he will rule and reign upon that throne for all of eternity. So I wonder, in hearing this pronouncement, how well Gabriel was able to alleviate the fear that Mary was feeling in her heart. Could you imagine such a thing being said about a child that you would raise? Feelings of incompetence, 
feelings of unworthiness, feelings that overwhelmed you into thinking what is going to happen and how is this going to work and what is this going to look like in my life. But this is exactly what Gabriel has said to this unmarried teenage girl who is still a virgin waiting for the betrothal period to be completed. Number eight in our parallel is the objection. So in verse 18 we see the objection that Zacharias gives upon hearing this pronouncement and he says to the angel how will I know this for certain I just want to pause right here and tell you that's never a good thing to say to a messenger of the Lord if God ever appears to you in the form of a vision or if a messenger is ever sent to you don't say how will I know this is true it indicates a lack of faith but that's what Zacharias says in We can understand that. But he says, For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So Zacharias was righteous, but he was not sinless. He trusted God, but he lacked faith and understanding and agreeing with this pronouncement that he has heard. (laughs) So even in the most unusual appearance, Zacharias was not sure that he could believe all that he was hearing. And like many, many of the great faith people of the Bible, there's a lot of questions, there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of uncertainty. And Zacharias just simply acknowledges the human concern. How is this going to happen? Because I'm an old man, and my gal's an old lady, and she can't have kids anymore. I just don't know how this is going to be. It doesn't make any sense. All these years and no child well advanced in age and beyond the childbearing years. So how can I know, how can I know, taking this to the bank, that this is actually going to happen? So Mary's objection, we've already looked at, is a little softer than Zacharias. And here, hers is more rooted in a misunderstanding of how it could happen, rather than questions about it being able to happen. So again, in verse 34, Mary says to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Well, I don't want to surprise anybody here, but it's physically impossible to have a child in a state of virginity. You just don't accidentally get pregnant, right? How can this happen? How in the world is this going to happen since I am an unmarried virgin And my betrothal period isn't for many, many months down the road. Now, what is clear to me in this pronouncement that Mary makes is that she isn't thinking that this is something that's going to take place in the distant future. I believe Mary knows that this is going to happen very, very quickly. And so she's saying, how is this going to happen? Because I'm still not married and my betrothal is not for many, many more months down the road. So it's a much softer objection than Zacharias is, but the question remains, how can this be? Number nine in this parallel is the sign. This is the last parallel that we'll look at here. So in verses 19 and 20, the angel answered and said to him, Zacharias, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So the sign that Gabriel gives to Zacharias is commuted, communicated in the form of a rebuke 
with a hearty sense of chastisement and a very real consequence that is going to be a sign that this thing is going to come to pass. This consequence is the result of Zacharias's unbelief expressed in the objection of how this thing is going to take place. So Gabriel was God's primary messenger who appeared to communicate God's message and here he speaks incredibly good news to Zacharias and says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Zacharias would be unable to speak until the day of John the Baptist's circumcision when the name is confirmed as he writes it out on the tablet. And it's at that very moment that Zacharias is able to speak. And I'm not including this for the sake of time. But we see this prophetic utterance given to Zacharias when God unlooses his tongue. It's recorded in verses 67 through 79. I encourage you to go back and read that later in the day. Don't read it now. We're going to be done in just a moment. I don't want you to miss this. But Zacharias is given this sign. He's not going to be able to speak as much as he's going to open his mouth and move his tongue and push air out of his lungs. Nothing is going to be heard. Well, Mary is also given a sign. She doesn't ask for it particularly. And here's what is recorded in verses 35 through 37. The angel gave, excuse me, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, indicating it's six months later from her appearance, from Gabriel's appearance to Zacharias. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. So the Holy Spirit, who is communicated to us as the agent of creation, would again create the Holy Child in the womb of the Virgin Mary without any human interaction. And what Gabriel tells her is the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, meaning He will surround you, He will encompass you. It is the same word that is used to describe the cloud of glory that comes down and encompasses Peter, James, and John at the transfiguration when they are enveloped by the Holy Spirit and they see Jesus as He really is in a white that is so bright their eyes can't even contain can't even really look upon it. And so this is how the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow Mary. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit is going to, is going to create life and a womb without any human assistance. We aren't told when this happens. We aren't told how this happens. But it is likely that this happens very, very quickly. And it is assumed that when Mary visits Elizabeth, as we're told a little bit later in this chapter, and Mary greets Elizabeth, and John the Baptist jumps in the womb of Elizabeth, it is assumed by most commentators that she is already pregnant, and that is known through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the through the infilling the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in John the Baptist, who is still in Elizabeth's womb. 
Although Mary did not ask for this sign, Gabriel gave her one, telling her that your cousin Elizabeth, whom Mary would have known, and also knew that she was well advanced in years, and that she would miraculously become pregnant. And when Elizabeth confirms this pregnancy for Mary, the sign is then confirmed that this is going to take place in the life of Mary. And this narrative concludes in verse 38 for Mary. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Luke's brief description of Mary's meeting with Elizabeth will confirm this promise to Mary and the narrative will continue as it follows the birth of John the Baptist and his circumcision, the birth of Jesus and his circumcision. And these sometimes lost narratives, I think, tell us so much about the miraculous nature of God, the noble ways of God, as he fulfills prophecy connecting the Old Testament and the New Testament and the reason why you and I celebrate Christmas today. Christmas is a celebration of the incarnation of God's one and only Son, the Holy Child born of a virgin who lived a sinless life, who went to the cross to die for my sin, who was raised for my future glory. This is the one that I worship. And every believer would say the same thing with me. He is the reason for our season. Would you pray with me, please?